more intentional time for prayer and reflection, anticipation of what the Lord will speak to us. So this morning we're going to do something a little bit different in our call to worship. We're actually going to go through a liturgy of preparation to hear the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read some and then we're going to read some together and then we're going to have time to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So I'm going to read these first, this first prayer and then I'm going to read the second part. I'm going to invite you to say it with me and we'll take time to pause and to listen as we prepare ourselves to hear God's holy word and to worship, to continue worshiping together. So pray with me if you would. Holy one, for all the ways you speak to us, in the rushing wind and dancing flames, in the words of friends and loved ones, and in all that transcends language, we give you thanks. Give us eyes to see your story, a story of redemption that works in our lives each day. Give us ears to listen to your words with hope, reminding us of your promise to dwell with us always, even in the shadows of darkness. Give us courage to speak, your, uh, to speak your love everywhere we go to everyone we meet. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And if you would pray with me. Lord, you call, but we do not always recognize your voice. Sometimes we don't listen carefully. Sometimes we're caught off guard. Sometimes we stand in the way, allowing our voice to ring out over yours. Lord, you call, but we don't always have ears. Sometimes we believe we know better. Sometimes we think you can't be. Forgive us, Lord. <laughs> we are so grateful. And take a moment, if you would. As we have confessed this as a group, personally set your intention to listen to the Holy Spirit, to believe what the Spirit says, to act on that. Amen. Um, if you're visiting for the first time today, you're going to jump in to deep water as we go. Because this, preparing for this lesson has been one of the most challenging that I've had to face in a very long time. As I was praying and writing in my journal the other morning, well, maybe not so much praying as whining and complaining, I don't know, does anybody else do that? I mean, it is a prayer practice, but it's essentially what I was doing. Um, I was caught up short by the Holy Spirit. And it, was as, it seemed as if the Holy Spirit was saying that what I was feeling was a direct answer to my prayer. 
and that seemed odd. And then I thought about it, and I said, well, part of my prayer practice every day is I, I pray that God would give me eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart to love and obey. And again, as if the Holy Spirit was listening in intently to my thoughts, the response was, and John, how do you expect to get that? How do you expect to get understanding? How do you expect to get discernment? How do you expect, what do you think is going to happen when your eyes get open and your ears get open? That will come with a cost. Now, not the kind of cost in the world where I pay for something, a quid pro quo, buying something, but the kind of cost that comes from letting go of what we're comfortable with, letting go with what is easy, letting go with what is familiar so that we can receive something new. The kind of cost that comes from athletic training, the kind of cost that comes from doing work so that we are capable of more things, that kind of cost. And so it created in me an odd sense of hope that maybe what I was feeling, the conflict that I was encountering, the, the discussion and the wrestlings that we've been having weren't just because we were doing something wrong, but maybe they were because we were doing something right. And maybe, hopefully, it was because God is among us working. This text that we are going to look at this week um, is a beautiful text, beautiful story in and of itself. It's an awesome thing that we could do a whole fall on teachings on everything that's encompassed in it, with it. But as we were preparing and as the the team was preparing and when we're in this season of asking who's going to lead us in the next season and where we're going to go as Grace Church, how we're kind of going to define ourselves and our practices. Um, it can also be very incendiary. It can be one that is used to draw lines and build walls. And so as we were preparing for it, I thought, well, we just finished three weeks of what we called Rediscovering Grace, which is where we go through kind of the founding documents of who we are as a church and why we do things the way we do. And I thought, well, this is a great time. Let's Let's stop for a minute and look at how we look at Scripture as a church. Because what we're going to be asking this fall through all the Scriptures that are taught and all the different people that are teaching it is how is God intervening with us? What is God doing? And we know the primary way that God responds to us is through grace. So this fall, we're going to look at this idea of discovering grace, not in the sense of our founding documents, but in in the sense of discovering grace in the Word. Discovering grace in the Bible. Discovering grace in our relationships with one another. Discovering grace in our relationship with God. We are going to look for, expect, and hopefully discover grace as we go. So, we're going to look at the Scripture, but the first thing that we have to remember, in looking at Scripture. Now, for some of you, this is going to be Bible study 101, okay? But it's a good reminder for all of us. The first thing that we need to do is understand 
that we are all interpreting all the time. We have to be very careful when we use our language around saying the Bible says. We have to be very careful with that because all of us are looking at the Bible through lenses. Lenses of culture, lenses of community, lenses of our personal experiences, lenses of our, of our biological makeup, lenses of language, whether we're reading that in Portuguese, whether we're reading that in Maori, whether we're reading that in English, and what English? Old English, modern English, East Coast English, British English, Indian English. We all have lenses that we're looking. And in, in the start of any honest and faithful biblical interpretation is to recognize that we have lenses. We can't get rid of them. There is no way to look at the Bible purely objectively. No one can do that. Not even if you are reading it in the original Greek or Hebrew. We all have lenses. We're all always interpreting. So we have to start with understanding that. And what that does is creates, in me at least, a great deal of humility in handling the text. It creates, I believe what that does is show honor to the text. Is I am not assuming that the Bible conforms to my lenses and that my interpretation is the interpretation. So we start by recognizing our lenses. And then we also start by understanding what the Bible actually does. Now there's a lot of words that are thrown out there to use to describe the Bible. And I have issues with a lot of those words. So I'm going to tell you how I understand the Bible to be. Some people will use the word inerrant. That there is no mistake in the Bible at all. Well, that's a sticky idea. First of all, the Bible never says that about itself. But second of all, in what way? And in what language? And at what time? And I think this inerrancy thing hangs us up. Because we think, it gives us, it makes us to think in absolutist terms. And so what I like to use, and the term that I think is more accurate, and the term that the Bible uses for itself, is that it is authoritative is that it carries an authority like no other book or document or group. And that authority is dynamic. That authority is ongoing. That authority is also makes it incumbent upon us to respond to it. So primarily, I start with an idea that the Bible, first of all, is authoritative, that it has something to tell me, and, it, and I am obliged to respond to it. I can't just treat it as a thing to be picked up and laid down as I choose. It has authority. Whether I recognize that or not, it has authority. The other thing we look for a lot of times are absolutes. We say, well, the Bible said it's absolute. Okay, there are some things. I will, I will grant you, there are some things that that are absolute in there. But much more than that, I would say that the Bible is inspired. Because we're going to go, we're going to find what we're looking for when we go to the Bible. We go looking for absolutes, we're going to find absolutes. Black and white, again, drawing lines. 
I believe it's much more, and I believe, that, again, the Bible says this about itself, that it is inspired, that it is alive, that it is speaking to us, that it is changing us, that it is entering into our lives, that it is working in us and through us. So not only is it authoritative, but it's inspired. And then the last thing I'll say about this is that sometimes we go to the Bible looking for ideology. We go for looking for ideas, constructs, whereas the Bible is about theology. The Bible's primarily goal, primary goal is to teach us about God, for God to inspire us and authoritatively speak to us so that we know about God with that. Now, those may seem like quibbles to you. They, are, they may seem huge. I don't know. But to me, that's where we have to start. We have to start with what do we expect from the thing that we are going to study? Because that is going to go a long way in determining what we find. And if we approach the Bible as authoritative, as inspired, and as God's primary way that he's speaking to us, revealing himself, revealing God's self to us, y'all, we'll find it. We will find that. And that is invigorating and life-giving with that. Once we understand that, then the question comes, will we submit to it? I have found time and time again that if I go to the Bible holding back, well, let me see what it says first before I decide whether I'm going to do that or not. It is a closed book. The treasures, the truth, the inspiration do not open themselves to that. My attitude, my posture towards approaching the scripture has to be one of submission. Submission to God. Submission to what I am taught, what I find there. So, with that in mind, let's read our text this week, and then we'll make some observations about how we do that. We're starting in Genesis. We're starting a new year in our liturgical calendar, as far as our narrative, how we study the scripture. And last year, we started with Genesis 1. I think this year, we start with Genesis 2. There there are two separate accounts side by side. This is another one that we have. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made, heaven, made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub in the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant on the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east in Eden, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord took the man, placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and maintain it. Then the Lord commanded man, you may freely eat 
fruit from every tree in the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see which, what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds and the fish, <coughs> the birds of the air and the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Now while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side, closed, it up, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the party he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she is taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become one family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not shamed. Credible, right? First time anybody's heard this in here? Pretty common, right? Like, even if you just know a little bit of the Bible, you probably know this story or are familiar with some of its components. So what do we do, that? What do, we do with that, especially a passage that we're familiar with? Well, again, let's back up. How do we approach the Bible in general with that? First thing we have to say, what is the genre? What is the genre that is being here? There's all kinds of genre. There's poetry and there's prophecies and there's narratives and there's instructives in the Bible. What is this particular genre? Well, this is a theohistoric narrative. Okay? So again, what are we coming to the Bible? Look, if we're coming for a science lesson here, this is not a good place. This is not a science text. This is a theohistoric narrative. It is designed to give people an understanding of God and how God works with us. So once we understand that, we can start to let it do what it is. This is not a history text either. The way that we understand history in the modern Western context, this is not a history book. It tells a story that involves our history, it tells a story that involves elements of science and creation, but that's not its primary aim. It's not written for that. It is a theohistoric narrative with that. Also, it was set down, even though this story was told from creation and we ascribe the authorship to Moses, it wasn't written down. It wasn't firmly established until generations after Moses was gone. It was set down in a time where the people of Israel were surrounded and engaged with various cultures who had their own theohistorical narratives, who had their own ideas of how the world was created and how, what, who God was and what God was doing, and certain elements, because I guarantee you when Moses told this story, this wasn't all he said. We all know a good story, right? We all know how you take time to set the stage and you use your voice you, and you get out, you may have a prop or two, right? You may have a campfire behind you and use the sparks and everything. So I believe the story that Moses wove, that it was handed down to him generation after generation, was epic in scope, was broad in its details. And the story we have is faithful to that. 
The story that we read today is faithful to that, but I don't believe it's all of it. It's not meant to be. The story as it was set down was designed to answer specific questions for specific people. And then it is inspired to speak to us where we are. But let's ask, well, what were, what were people asking? What was happening to the people? What were the questions they were asking? Well, we know it through Israel's experience, and especially with their contact with Mesopotamia and with Assyria and with the Babylonians and the Egyptians, that there were all kinds of stories out there about who humans were and what they were. Most oftentimes, human beings were created by the gods. Gods, plural, this polytheon, as tools or playthings or subjects or servants. And most often time when they were created out of the ground, it wasn't a breath of God that breathed into them, but a God would bleed into them or spit into them. Human beings were demeaned. To be human was to be a thing. To be used and thrown away. If there's anything that this biblical text answers, it is, are human beings worth anything? God, the one God, breathed intimate into that for the purpose of relationship and co-creating and caring for creation. There's no violence in our Genesis accounts of creation. That alone sets the theo-historical narrative of Genesis apart from almost every other creation story. Is there's no conflict. There's no, there's no anger. There's no abuse. There is this, this intimate respecting and giving and sharing that God has with creation. That was one of the primary questions it was answering. Is are humans worth anything? Now, these cultures also, we know from historical evidence, archaeology, that if they saw a modern American marriage between a man and a woman, that would be silly. These relationships that they had, the sexual, what we call sexual immorality, was rampant in these cultures. It was polygamous, they were temporary. They were abusive in their nature. They involved children and animals. It was awful. It was degrading. It was abusive and disgusting. And into that, God brings this. He says, well, what, about, what about you, Israel? What about my people? Now that I've created you in my image with this way, what does that look like? He says, it's respectful. It's two people coming together who complement each other to work together. There is no higher or lower. There is no, there is no abuse in this. And it's for a purpose also because ultimately the purpose of the sexual encounters that we see from the other, from the other cultures was all about self-gratification or some kind of debasing, doing it as an offering to some sadistic, sick God. 
And this theo-historical narrative that we're seeing seems to bring us back to this idea. No, that, that, that the, the people coming together is something that actually reflects the image of God. It's not done to appease a God. But it's done as a reflection of God with that. You see, in these stories, like all stories determine how we see ourselves. This determined how Israel saw itself. It determines how we see ourselves, the world, and others. Every Look, everybody has a story they're telling themselves. We all have stories we're telling ourselves. Nobody survives if you're human in this world without telling yourself a story. Where do I come from? What am I worth? What do I do? Who's mad at me? Who's not mad at me? Where does my shame come from? Where does my... Love come from with that. And we see in this narrative that it is coming down from God. He's giving us answers. He's speaking into that. And the other thing we have to remember about this text also, this text is actually really funny in Hebrew. This We read, again, when we come to it, we want, man, I want history, or I want science, or I just want, the, you know, ideology, or I want absolutes. You can't get that from this. This is a funny story. This is literally a story where it's like God is creating this thing. And the other thing is also it's rooted. I need to say this. The reason why there's all the descriptions of the land and the rivers and the specific places, because this God, it's not, this is not some cosmic tale that happens off somewhere else. Like this is us. This is our earth. This is for us on this earth with this. So God, it's like God makes man, and he's like, okay, I'm going to make this one different. I'm going to breathe my, my life into him. I'm going to sit him down. I'm going to go, okay, let's find you a helper, Adam. How about this camel? Like, God, no, that's a camel. Okay. Okay. How about this donkey? God, no, that's a donkey. He's, na- he's naming these things. They're not like him, right? And he gives them specific names. That's turtle. That's donkey. That's gnat, right? That's camel. Like, like it's, it's a, in Hebrew, it's really funny. And then he gets to the woman, right? He goes on this thing. And literally, so, so we read Adam and Eve, and we think of those as proper names. They're really not. Well, Eve is more. Adam just means man or the man. So you have the man who is giving specific names to animals, and then he meets woman. He doesn't even know what to call her. He doesn't, he literally doesn't have a name. She's not named until later. He's just like, in, in, in Hebrew, the words correspond. It's ish and, does anybody remember? I can't remember. It's, it's right off that. It sounds like it. it. It's a rhyming with Adam in it. And so he, he goes literally like, I'm the man. I guess she's the woman. It's a play on word. It, this is meant to inspire awe. And joy. This is meant to inspire people into understanding that God's joy was given in creating us. It wasn't done out of obligation or out of debt. It wasn't done because God needed slaves or servants. Our creation was an act of creative, generative joy, free from conflict and conquest. That alone should make this text incredibly dear to us. Now, 
I say all that, and as we were talking, then we go, well, what about us? What about the questions we're asking? Because within this text, there are specific things that deal with the relationship between man and woman. What's the role of a woman? What's the relationship with a woman to a man? Is it subservient? Is it hierarchical? Is it patriarchal? Is it complementary? What about homosexuality? Is this definitively just a man and a woman? And that's it? That's all that's allowed? That's the way we're created? What about gender issues? It says God created a male and female. Period? Is that all that it means with that? And what about the family? It says, this, it says it's answering this question, for this reason, a man shall leave his family, a woman shall leave his family, and they shall come together and start a new family. Okay, well, is that limited to that? Is that the only thing that happens? And before you think, again, before you go and you start thinking, well, this is absolute, I'd tell you to hold on a minute there. Let's remember, let's remember what are we bringing to this? If we're looking for absolutes, if we're looking for ideology, if we're looking for inerrancy like this was set down, you can find that here. I don't believe that's the proper way to approach it. If we look at it for authority, for inspiration, for theology, I think we're going to find some interesting things. So let's look at these issues. Now, here's the other thing before we do that. And again, we're going to run a little long here, okay? Just to lay the foundation, because these are... These are tough issues. We also always look at the text, not just by itself, but where does it fit in the narrative arc of the whole Bible? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. is a basic fundamental hermeneutic of approaching text. So we can't look at any one Scripture, no matter where it is, in isolation and expect that to be the definitive answer. And let me say this. Also, there are, just because there are definitive answers, answers in scripture doesn't mean that all the answers are definitive. Okay? It's, we cannot make blanket statements across the board. The Bible, more often than not, I would say 99 times out of 100, invites us into mysterious waters. Invites us into places where we contemplate what is being said. Invite it where it invites in to change us with that. If you're just looking for a rule book, a guidebook, this is not the book for you. That's not how the Bible operates. There are rules. There, are, there is guidance, for sure. But that's not all that's there. We have to be careful how we approach that. So let's look at this issue with women. With women. You know, there are a couple real popular terms out there. And listen, all, here's the other thing. I'm going to make everybody mad here today, okay? Just be ready. I'm going to make you mad because I'm going to push against some of what you believe already. I'm not going to explain it thoroughly enough. I'm going to leave a lot of stuff hanging. All right? So, yeah. We just don't have time to do all that. But I'm going to really do my best to make at least something that I say make every one of you in here mad today. Okay? Either the way I say it or what I say. So let's look at this. The two popular terms in dealing with a man and a woman today are complementarianism which basically means there's a hierarchy, there's limited roles, there's only things that women do, there's only thing that men do. And men, what did I say, complementary? Complementarianism. But, but that they're equal, right? Like there's no hierarchy, there's no authority with that. Is that complementarianism? No, complementarianism, there is hierarchy. I, listen, 
I read this stuff and it goes through my head and I'm just like, why are they talking about? Egalitarian is when there is no, there's no hierarchy between them. And one of, the, one of the scriptures that's been used here to argue that, hey, women are subservient to men, is it says helper. The old King James English, they used to say help meet, a worthy help meet with that. Well, there's a big problem with that. I think, first of all, if you just look at the story and you didn't use that word, it's pretty obvious that these people are complementary. Like there's a, there's a solid non-hierarchical relationship there. But the second thing is this word ezer. It's the Hebrew word ezer, where we get helper. Now in our culture, and especially where I grew up, the help were the servants. We even have a movie, right, called The Help. And so when we read that into there, we automatically, again, with our lens on that we already talked about, we backload into that, oh, well, the woman's there to just clean up after the dude. You know what? That doesn't sound too bad to me. (laughs) Sorry, ladies. But it doesn't, right? I mean, if you're a dude and you're like, hey, I can't do all this stuff. God makes this woman to come along and help me clean up after me, cook, have kids. Man, that's awesome. Until you read what easer really means. And what it says. Because you know who Ezer refers to in all the other places in the Bible? Just about? It's God. I look into the mountain. Where does my Ezer come from? My Ezer is the Lord. This word is loaded with the idea of God supplying for us and giving someone to us to do the things we can't do for ourselves. You want to find grace? You want to discover grace in the Bible? This is a grace. The first grace that we see, almost the very first grace we see given in the Bible, is a woman being given to a man in this story. Is God supplying for the person through this complementary person what that person cannot do for themselves. Now look, again, no one text is going to decide the issue. But if you are arguing for patriarchy or complementarianism, I do not believe you can use this text. I believe, in fact, it argues against it. That it argues for full equality in all things between men and women. Again, we'd say it grace all the time. Don't believe what I say just because I've got the microphone. Work it out in your groups, in your stuff. Second thing, okay, well, like I said, we ain't got time to do all this, so I'm just going to throw stuff out. Uh, Gender identity, right? Hey, says a man and a woman, period. You're boy or girl, you're blue or you're pink with that. Well, Let's understand, first of all, just because it creates in those categories doesn't mean that that's exclusive. This is theo-historical narrative, okay? So it's not making scientific assertions of, of absolute things with that. However, it does set for us a normative direction. So, even though we're dealing in a society where we realize that, you know what, things don't line up like that. 
This is just not the way things line up in our experience, in our reality. Even science tells us there are others created who do not fall cleanly into one or the other. We know that scientifically with that. We have to deal with that. We have to understand that. But again, if you're gonna, you can't use this text to say, well, it doesn't matter. There is no gender. The gender is just a societal construct. construct that we can just get to decide whatever gender we aren't. This text would argue against that. This text would say no. There is a normative intent of Scripture that follows along the gender lines. We also know from experience that gender is how we experience the world. I experience the world as a dude, as a guy. That doesn't mean, though, that everybody only experiences the world in those binary choices. But we cannot dismiss gender either. We can't say it is of no relevance it has no bearing, or that there's no normative pattern that's established in Scripture for it. Now again, we have to look at this in the context of everything that we have with that. But just like I think this excludes any kind of patriarchy, and I think there's other Scriptures that do it here, we have to say, hey, we have to accept that gender is something that we experience the world through, and it's something we have to deal with, and we have to understand God's purpose and intent for it. All right? Anybody mad yet? Let's keep going. What about homosexuality then? It does. I mean, how many times have you heard to say Scripture created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve? What, what are we going to do? Are we just supposed to throw open the doors and let everybody, anybody marry anybody? Just on the basis of love? Or are we to say absolutely without equivocation? No, has to be a man and a woman. Now, if I haven't made you mad, I'm going to make you mad with this one. Because my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. It's something I'm wrestling with. I think it's something society we are wrestling with as, as well. If we are looking for this text to be definitive about it, I don't think we're using the text the way it's supposed to be used. I do believe it has a lot to teach us. I don't believe that it draws an exclusionary binary line with this. But that doesn't mean also, just because it doesn't give us the answer we want or the answer in the way we want doesn't mean we have a right to dismiss it either. We have to take this into account in our discussions. We have to submit ourselves to its authority, its inspiration, and its theology. So it... It has to inform our discussions and our decisions about that. I do not believe, though, that it is some kind of definitive text that says this is the only thing. Now, I want to tell you this. You know how I said this has been a real struggle preparing for this because I knew you touch on these issues, there's landmines all around in our culture, right? Right? And there's some people that want you to define it one way. Some people want you to define it the other way. Other people don't want you to define it at all. Some people want you to just interpret the text one way. Right? I get all that. Um, in a sense, okay? Bear with me. Give me some grace here. In a sense, I am profoundly grateful 
for the whole discussion over homosexual marriage, orientation, practice. I'm really grateful for it. For this reason, it is forcing me to go back and ask the question, what is marriage about in the first place? Why do we do this? I mean, because I'm registered down at the county courthouse to do marriages in, in Arkansas, I can sign people's marriage license and, and literally marry them. I've, come to, I've, I've struggled with, do I even want to do that anymore? Do I want to be a functionary of the state that signs off on this? I've thought about going down and having my name removed so that I don't have to deal with the issue. But this issue is making all of us step back and go, wait a minute. What is marriage all about in the first place? Why would I want to give up my individual self-sufficient lifestyle to join with another person? in intimacy, and in legal contractual obligation. Why would I want to do that? And what's the purpose of doing it? Is it just, is it just to have sex? Those of you who've been married a while are snickering right now. Those of you who just got married, you will snicker eventually. Is it, just for, is it just for economics? Is it just because it's, you know, we get a better tax break if we're married? Is it just to, to play into the system of economy with that? What's the purpose of marriage? Now, we ask that question. Man, then we can look at this text in a whole different way. Now we'll start to see the text open itself up to us. Because I believe that's the primary question the text is asking. Why do this? Yes, it informs our understanding of who, but it starts with why. And that's the question we have to start with. Why marriage? Why do this? And in that we see that there is a profound and much more authoritative understanding of why we should do this, why individuals should leave their families, why they should reject just going out and fulfilling their, their pleasures in any way, whatever they want, depending on their conscious or their biological urges or whatever, why we should reject that, but why instead we should come together that two people and again, we understand this as two people. The historical listeners, they didn't get that for a while because they practiced polygamy for a whole long time. Um, but why two people should come together and do this. And then we read Genesis and we go, oh my gosh. Look at what it says to us. Look at what it says that we are invited to participate in. Look at what it says about the meaning of our creation. Look at what it means to be a human being created in the image of God, to have life breathed into me by the Holy Spirit, and to be able to find a person who compliments me, who literally covers my blind spots, helps me to do the things I can't do, see the things I can't see, hear the things I can't hear, accomplish the things that I cannot accomplish by myself or by staying with my family of origin with that. And I think if we're going to answer those other questions with that, that's where 
we have to start. So as I said, when I started, I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. And listen, I know it's going to sound, I know this is going to sound like a cut and run on this. I've literally got to be teaching at 5 o'clock in Arlington, Texas this afternoon for the perspective class. So I know you're going to have all these questions. And I love this. I'm just going to drop these bombs in here, and I'm going to skedaddle. Uh, I'm going to Texas. But I, I say that because this is a discussion that we start here. We don't finish here. Okay? This is a discussion we start here, but we don't finish. We're not going to finish it in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. But I am hopeful. Y'all, I haven't always been, and I've wrestled with it. I've struggled with it. But right now, I can tell you I am hopeful. I am hopeful that when we discipline ourselves to approach Scripture in the way that we talked about this morning, that we are committed to one another in community, that we are committed to submitting ourselves to the authoritative, inspired theology that we find in the Bible, that we will be able to do this. I don't believe God gives us his word to frustrate us, to exclude us, to condemn us, to shame us, to frustrate us. I don't believe that's the purpose of Scripture. So I am hopeful that as we, as we seriously dig into these things, that we will discover grace. We will discover grace for ourselves, for each other, and for this beautiful, broken, messed up, confusing, wonderful, mysterious world in which we live. So thank you for being here this morning. As we, uh, as we respond to this, like I said, I've I got a lot to chew on. Um, start by obeying. Start by submitting yourself to the table, to receiving grace through the elements, through the body and blood of Jesus, which is given for us, which very clearly, now here is an authoritative statement in the Bible. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Come to the table in remembrance of what God has done for us and receiving the grace through which we receive life with that. Bailey's, as you take it, you're going to hold the elements, you're going to stay up here, Bailey's going to lead us together in taking the elements together. We also take up an offering here at this time as symbolic that none of us here is without something to give, none of us here is without a need. So we share our resources and we pray and we reflect and then ultimately we find grace. Thank you.